let me introduce you to inspiring entrepreneurs. Hi there, my name is Ben Gothard. My mission is to interview incredible entrepreneurs who are changing the world and present their stories to you, unscripted and unedited. From billionaires to Forbes 30 under 30 recipients to New York Times best-selling authors and much, much more, these people are living proof that nothing is impossible. Join me on this journey to learn from their experiences and become the person you're meant to be. Welcome to the Project Egg Show every morning at 8 a.m. Central. Dolman, welcome to another episode of the Project Egg Show. Today, we have the honor of speaking with Morgan Gist McDonald, founder and CEO of Paper Raven Books, an independent publishing company. Morgan, how are you today? I am doing awesome, Ben. How are you? I am fantastic, and I'm very grateful that you joined me on the show today. So thank you very much for that. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. Absolutely. Let's jump right in. What is your story? So I did not intend to be an entrepreneur, as many of us would probably start our stories. Uh, I was actually going to be an academic, so I did really well in college. Professors would pull me aside and say, I think you should get your PhD, was super flattered, uh, went for it, got accepted to a really prestigious PhD program in sociology. Two years in, realized it was not for me. <laughs> Had one of those existential crises, realized I wasn't doing any of my own research, but I was helping other people with their research. So I was writing coaching and I was editing uh, colleagues and junior faculty and pretty soon kind of became a go-to editor and writing coach for the campus and realized, oh, wait, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a breadcrumb trail here to follow. So left after the master's, went and started my freelance editing and writing coaching business and did that for years, actually, uh, just on referrals while I was having kids. So started having kids when I was 20, I think I was 24 when I had my, my first little one. And so grew a business while growing kids and um, fast forward gosh, uh, I guess we're getting close to 10 years now and we've become a publishing company. So, you know, I went from freelance editor to bringing on a team of editors to work on projects. And then people would come back and say, thanks for helping me edit my book. How do I publish the book? We'll figure it out. Okay. We'll build team. We'll build systems. We'll build processes. And now we have a, just under our belt, we have significant processes for like the best practices of self-publishing. So we self-publish for authors. And now like our tagline is, you know, we're paper raven books and we're an independent publishing company. We help people write, publish and market their books. So that was the, uh, the fast forward version. That's an awesome, awesome story. And I love the progression from doing what you're good at and, and supporting others and providing value to others and letting that organically grow into this business and, and then kind of expanding and, and it seems very organic, like referral based, doing what you're the best at. So that's, uh, that's really exciting to hear. The interesting thing about organic is I think that we assume if it's organic, that it comes 
easily and naturally. Uh, but I think like many entrepreneurs, there were moments where I just had to make a hard decision and it felt like doing a hard left turn. And I, you know, I think we all do that in order to get to that next level. I remember very distinctly um, at one point we went on a vacation and my husband and I actually both spent the entire vacation working and we had three children with us. So it was not a fun vacation. And afterward, we had planned some downtime, just the two of us. And on that sort of downtime, we were just sort of walking and, and just, I was talking with my husband and I was like, I need a team to handle projects so I don't do this again. And I'm going to niche down and I'm just going to make the decision. We are becoming, we're doing books. From now on, <laughs> I'm not expecting anything except books. And like, you just have to make that hard decision sometimes. And so, yes, it's organic, but yes, there are hard decisions where you're just like, I'm pulling a sharp left turn. We'll see where this goes. <laughs> what gave you the, the push or how, like, did you, did you feel something inside that was like, this is where we need to go? Like, how did you know that was the right decision for you at that time? I had no idea. <laughs> it sounds terrible. But, you know, at some point you just realize like, okay, assuming that whichever option I choose is going to be successful, which one would I rather do? And at that point I was like, okay, do I want to continue editing theses and dissertations? That particular vacation I'd been editing a dissertation and I was like, hell no, I'm done with dissertations. <laughs> like, I don't want to do any more academic writing. And so, you know, I was like, what would I want to do? I really love books. Like I love to just edit books. And I realized, well, I don't want to just, you know, edit one book project at a time and I'm capped. Like I want to work with a team, you know, and then very recently we had to do something similar. Even as a growing company, we had to say, do we want to work with fiction writers? And we said, yes. And I still like in this moment, don't know if that's a good decision or not. <laughs> like, we're still figuring it out. We're running fiction courses. We're coaching fiction writers. We're looking at what it looks like to publish fiction. And it was just a, it was another, maybe this was a hard right turn. <laughs> but it was just another decision that we made. And we just won't know if it's going to play out until we get enough um, people that we work with to see if it's worthwhile. You said something that I think is brilliant. And you said a lot of things that I think are brilliant, but the one that stood out the most to me um, was when you said, assuming both paths are going to be successful, like assuming both things are going to work out, which one would you prefer? I think that's brilliant because that almost removes a lot of that, uh, that cloudiness and that bias from the decision and allows you to think about, okay, well, let's say it, let's say it, either one of them are going to be successful. Like, what do you actually want to do? I, I think that's brilliant. Was that a very intentional decision? Like, where did that thought process come from? Yeah, what are those like little bumper sticker, you know, paperweights that I guess not a bumper sticker, I guess it's a paperweight <laughs> with one of those mottos on it. And I, I don't remember if it was on my desk or someone else's desk, but it said, you know, if you knew that you could, what would you do if you knew you could not fail? What would you do if you knew you could not fail? And that just has always kind of um, continued to resonate for me. I think about that occasionally. So I suppose it was just my, you know, internalization of that same motto that was just on a paperweight, but it really, it seemed to have um, validation, like a, some sort of 
it, it just felt very true that if I knew I couldn't fail, I could do anything that I wanted. So um, it's less about the external circumstances and more about me and I'm going to make it happen. When you were making those decisions, did you like think about, okay, it's going to take this amount of work to get to that point, or it's going to take this amount of work to get to that point. Or did you think, did you think, okay, I'm just going to choose and then I'll figure it out later. Like how did you really approach that? So did I ready aim fire or did I ready fire aim? Yeah. <laughs> I am a, so if you've ever taken the, the Colby test, um, it measures things like um, how quickly you start projects, how much do you, I think research, how much do you create systems? How mechanical are you? Or no, follow through is one of them. So it's like quick start, research, or fact finder. Um, follow through is another, and then something about mechanical. And it's a scale of one to ten, and I am a nine on quick start, and pretty like minimal on everything else. <laughs> so I will always quick start. That is my nature, and I've come to expect that. And so. For me, it's, it's very much a part of my personal rhythm that it, something builds to a boiling point and then I just make a decision and just we're off in that direction and we will figure it out as we go. I know not everyone works that way and I wouldn't say it's the best way. It's just something that I've grown more comfortable with in my journey. Let's jump back into your childhood. Mm. What did it smell like? What did it smell like? Um, dust, because I'm from West Texas, small town West Texas. So if you've ever seen Friday Night Lights, like the TV show, that's my town. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, dust and cattle and oil rigs. And yeah, that's what I remember from my hometown anyway. Uh, I suppose childhood could be your actual home. I don't know. Yeah, it smelled like, um, it. I don't know if I would know the smell, but it felt very comfortable. Like I imagine pillows and like closeness and comfort, physical comfort. What was your relationship like with your parents and how did that evolve over time? Good. I've always had a great relationship with my parents, actually. They are both entrepreneurs, but more of the old school kind. So they have uh, worked in the oil industry. In fact, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And then once we kind of grew up, she became essentially the CFO of the small uh, company. And so now it's a three generation, like my granddad and my dad and my brother all are in the company. Um, and they actually just came onto my company as investors. So we have an actual like, investor relationship now. So I give them quarterly reports and they give me advice and um, it's actually a really, really nice relationship. How do you manage that dynamic between business and family? Luckily, I don't live in the same town, so I don't, don't have to worry about it too much. And my, my parents are very chill, so um, for us, it's not a problem. For the folks who are all working in the business together, <laughs> there's a little bit more. They, need to, they are, have to be more intentional about the conversations that stay at work and then the conversations that happen at home. They have to separate that out a little bit more. Um, but... I mean, for me, my parents are very much my cheerleaders. They're always encouraging me. They're offering suggestions and advice um, that are not from the digital marketing world, but still from, you know, classic entrepreneur world. And uh, they have a lot of sort of sage advice. They don't, they don't push it on me or anything, but they're super supportive. What were some of the values that 
they tried to instill in you growing up? Uh, there was definitely a value on doing your best. So um, whether that was school or, you know, tennis or piano or any of those activities, uh, you should show up, you should practice, you should do your best in practice, you should do your best, you know, like on the court when it matters in a tournament or, you know, on a test or whatever. But there was also a lot of um, forgiveness too. It was like, well, you do your best and then the outcome is what the outcome is, right? And you, you can't really do, uh, you can't do any better than, than your best. So whether it's an A minus or a C plus or you lose the tournament or whatever, like you let the chips fall and then you get back up and you do it again. Um, there's also a huge emphasis on like being there for your family. So we are lots of like, you know, dinner around the table every night. My dad, we usually lead some sort of discussion on whatever book he happened to be reading about history or theology or philosophy or whatever. So <laughs> we had lots of obscure conversations around our kitchen dinner table. Um, so there was also, yeah, emphasis on learning. So that's what I really remember is doing your best, letting the chips fall where they may, uh, family, like family together, quality time and the learning were, were pretty big. It seems like that, that love of learning maybe also crossed over into a love of books. Do you, do you think that that has something to do with what you do today? Like, do you think that was kind of an evolution of, of yourself and, and a further extension of, of that value? Yeah. If you were to walk into my parents' house right now, you could probably count, I'm going to guess at least two to 3000 books in the house. Like, Yes, there are bookshelves, but there are also stacks on nightstands and tables and like on the floor, this ran out of shelf space and we just kind of stacked it next to the bookshelf. So um, definitely surrounded, like that environment was full of, of books and really sort of, a, yeah, that reverence for learning. And, um, you know, now that we're emerging into the digital age, I really don't think that uh, people are diminishing books per se, they're just consuming them in a totally different way. So it's, it's like, you know, a package of learning. You get, a, you know, an argument from the beginning and then, or, you know, an experience, if it's a story, like a fiction story, and you get to walk through this whole experience in just a couple hundred pages. It's, it's pretty amazing, actually. So when you were getting a little bit older, getting into school, and I'm thinking grade school, elementary school, high school, who are you as a person? Uh, shy. I did not start conversations very easily. Um, in fact, in seventh grade, most of that year, I took my lunch to the library. <laughs> so back to books. <laughs> uh, but I did spend a significant yeah, chunk of my seventh grade lunchtime in the library until a friend found out that I was doing that. And then she forced me to have lunch in the main cafeteria, which felt very uncomfortable. But she be then became my best friend and we are still very close to this day. So that was good for me. Um, I was most myself when I was in a leadership position. So like, uh, which is ironic because it's like, I didn't make friends easily, but when I had a responsibility, like I really kind of lived up to that responsibility and was able to kind of lead people. Uh, I felt that most sort of acutely when I was the editor of the high school newspaper, right? So words, I was a good writer. I enjoyed editing people's, you know, articles and coaching them through how to write better. And that really suited kind of my strengths. It let me be introverted when I need to be introverted, but um, I could build those relationships from a leadership standpoint. So that was 
those are kind of two things that stood out most for me, I think. Do you feel like your, I guess, knowledge or mastery of words and language was a foundational piece of your leadership abilities? Do you mm. think there's any connection there? Um, I do think that um, my love of learning and reading and writing helped me when I was doing the freelance editing and the writing coach. But I think it was also perhaps my biggest obstacle as an entrepreneur who was learning to build a team because I kept falling back on my own skills. So I could do the editing, I could do the writing coaching. And so I found it harder to delegate those pieces to others, um, right? So when you're an entrepreneur, especially as you're kind of like thinking about, I'm a CEO and these products and services need to get delivered to our customer, the CEO doesn't do the delivering. <laughs> the CEO is not actually the editor or the writing coach. The CEO oversees you know, editing, editing services being delivered, writing coaching services being delivered. And so that was a big kind of learning for, for me, um, becoming that sort of CEO of the, of the company. So it helped me get to that first stage, but then in order to, to go to the next level, I really had to drop that, that part of my identity in a, in a way. How did you do that? Because it seems like an important piece of that is not just adding new skills or, or adding, but it also seems like it's removing or subtracting some old habits, old mindset. Yeah. Um, I think it, for me, it had to do with vision. What was I striving toward? Right. So when I was doing the craft myself, and if you think of like Mark, Michael Gerber's E-Myth Revisited, right, when you were the technician, the craftsman, you were doing the work. So I was the freelance editor. I was the writing coach. My vision was just to, you know, work with 10 projects over the course of the year, something like that. Um, that was my vision. But once I realized, oh, wait, the physical, like the, <laughs> the lived experience of maxing out my freelance editing and freelance writing coaching capacities is not fun. Doing the editing for 40 hours in a week is not fun. And actually it wasn't even 40 hours a week because I had kids at that point. So um, I could really only do like 20 ish, but even that it was like, well, that's my max. And I, it's not going to make me enough money to make this whole thing worthwhile what else could the vision look like? So then the next vision was, well, I could get a team of editors and I could bring in the projects and I could make sure they're doing a good job because I know what good editing and good writing coaching looks like. Okay, great. So now we've got that vision rolling and then people start asking more questions. Well, can you help me publish the book? And then getting the next level of the vision. Yeah, actually we can help you publish the book. What would that look like? Okay, bringing on more team members, more systems, more processes. And with each iteration of that vision, it, let, it allowed me to sort of let go of the, what I'd held on to previously. It seems like vision articulation it was kind of, like you were saying, like one of the big things that as it, as it grew, as it evolved, that's what helped you to grow and evolve. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's a very common theme amongst entrepreneurs, like the, the, the people with the biggest vision or the people with the most clarity of their vision are the ones that can go forward. Because if you don't know what forward is, how can you go that way, right? Um, how, 
have you how how have you articulated that vision time and time again? Like, did you sit down and and journal and figure out like, okay, this is what I want to do, or did it just hit you, or did you meditate? Like, what what were some of those actionable things, if there were any, uh, that helped you to get clarity on your on your vision? I do think it's an ongoing process. But I also think there are some foundational habits that have kept me open to this like iterative vision. Um, one of those is journaling. I do journal pretty much every day. And I mean, sometimes it's short, sometimes it's longer, but it's just sort of like giving myself space to think about like what's, what's not working, what am I frustrated with and, and what could it look like? Um, having a really open, like, um, I don't want to say open relationship with my husband, but like <laughs> transparent, honest relationship with my husband. And he's been available for me to just talk through what's not working. How could this be different? So like that conversation where I decided, okay, I'm not doing dissertations. I'm not, I'm now doing books. Like that was a talking realization. Uh, so journaling, having someone you can really talk through these issues with and constant learning. Like I cannot tell you, I am I'm always listening to a podcast or an audiobook or reading an, uh, reading a book or going through a course or in a coaching program so that you just like pick up what other people are thinking and their visions and what they think is possible and it all just kind of comes together. So yeah, those three journaling, the talking with someone reliable <laughs> and who who can be that sounding board for you and then just constant learning. Start with whatever you can. If it's just books right now, it's just books, but um, continuing to be open to more and more possibilities. I totally agree with like everything you were just saying. For example, this is my journal that I mm -hmm. keep right next to me. Mm -hmm. And then if you, you know, like I have books all around me, like this is one of my favorite. Nice. And uh, uh, yeah, so you're, you're totally like spot on, like you were kind of describing what I do too. So it's, it's nice to find a kindred soul. It's a, I will tell you one of the coolest things I've just started doing is, so I do have the, you know, kind of the regular spiral bound notebook. I like spirals where I just kind of write every day, mm -hmm. but then I went and got a giant notebook that has these huge pages um, because I've just realized my business is getting more and more complicated. So I was like, I need space to like map out, like, what is it that I'm creating? So this is a flow from Facebook ad through a webinar to a course wow. to an upsell. Right. And I just needed like space to put that out. And so people, some people put like big post-it, like the giant post-it notes on the wall. Some people have the big whiteboards. And I just found that like, I didn't have that space to just like sit there and draw on blank canvas. So that has been really fun for me in the last few weeks. That is awesome. That is awesome. I, I want to share a little, uh, a little tip. One of my friends told me maybe a year, year and a half ago. Um, she said one of the things that helped her the most was to go get one of those big, um, like big piece of paper that you can like unravel. Mm. You know what I mean? Like a, it's like a rolly thing and it's, it's just purely white paper and you just like roll it and it's like, you know, a hundred feet of paper or something like that, but you just roll it and you just keep writing and keep writing and keep writing until it's clear. Like oh everything is just mapped out. But you can imagine if you just let it, let it roll. And then you, you know, you write, 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 and you scoot over, right, right, right. Like you can get a lot of stuff out there. So 
that was something that somebody told me that I wanted to pass on because I thought that was a brilliant yes. idea. That's amazing because there's no, you know, artificial limit, right? You can just keep going until it's, until you're done. I love that. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your transition from high school to college. Mm. How did your identity change when you went there? How did your values evolve and grow uh, and shift if they did as you went from high school to college? Interesting. Um, I probably had a more continuous identity maybe than some because um, my husband and I met when we were in high school. We started dating senior year of high school. So we intentionally went to the same college. Um, we, it wasn't local. Like we both grew up in small town, West Texas, and then went to Denver, Colorado for college. Um, University of Denver, 30 pioneers out there. <laughs> Um, so, and we maintained that relationship and of course we got married after college, right? So I always had him as like, you know, the, my anchor, my identity anchor. Um, some things that did change for me, I, um, grew up Catholic and actually went deeper into the Catholic faith as a college student. So in sociology, uh, my honors thesis was around like a faith identity project where I did a lot of interviews. I was super involved in the Catholic student group. My husband was super involved in the Christian uh, student group. So that, like I had a real deepening of spirituality in that, in that season. Um, I also took grades really seriously, <laughs> probably too seriously. Um, I, I did have a love of learning, but as much as a love of learning, I also had a love of a 4.0. <laughs> so there were <laughs> like some moments where I was way more stressed out than I really needed to be. So high school, I felt some pressure to do well. But for some reason, once I got to college, I was like, I needed to be an A-plus student or I'm worthless. So I did go through that kind of ridiculous crisis um but that was yeah definitely part of my college experience was like it's got to be a plus or nothing <laughs> what made you and and i know you spoke about this a little bit earlier but i'm really interested in drilling down what made you finally go towards the master's program in into the the phd route like what was the thing that cemented for you okay that's what i want to do it was honestly a professor who I took several of his classes. He was my, my uh, not dissertation, um, honors thesis advisor. I had a lot of conversations with him and he just really encouraged me. He was like, you're, you're smart, you're dedicated, you put in the work, like you would make a great, you know, professor. And, you know, my parents were also saying, you know, life of a professor is pretty good if you need to balance it with family, you know, you get summers off, you know, you can rearrange your class schedule. So I thought that it was going to be like, easy, I suppose, like straightforward. So yeah, sure, it's tough to get a PhD, but I probably got what it takes. And then once I'm through the PhD, then I can, you know, kind of relax and just be a professor and teach classes and raise my kids and take summers off. Um, so it was, it was that encouragement from, the prof the, from my professor who said, yes, you can, like, I believe that you can do this. And then also like, well, that sounds really straightforward for a mom. <laughs> I can do that. Come to find out my colleagues who did become professors and are now tenure track and things like that. It's not so straightforward. Like there's still a lot to balance and a lot to manage. So it's not nearly as easy as I thought it might be, but I'm glad for them that they're still in it. <laughs> when you made the decision after your master's, I believe to 
go a different route and not go to the PhD program. Um, was that one of those decisions where you're just like, okay, I know I can be successful doing either of these things. And so I'm just going to do it and see what happens. Or like, was this like a big, long decision? Like, like maybe you could take us through your decision-making uh, process a little bit more and really drill down to like what you were thinking at the time. Oh gosh. Um, that was a dark time, honestly. Um, I did probably struggle with depression, although I didn't really admit it. Um, you know, you're young and you just don't know what you don't know. Right. Um, I really struggled with statistics and I wasn't the only one who struggled with statistics, but I'd always been that smart kid. And then suddenly I got a B plus in a class, which when you are on like, uh, when you're taking PhD level courses means it was a failure. So you had to retake the class. And that was the first time I'd ever had any sort of like moment, like, like, Oh, I failed a class. And so then I had to retake it the next year. Um, so there were some definitely some moments like that where it was like, Whoa, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Um, I was at a super liberal campus and I was, you know, a conservative Catholic kid who was married and like had really no interest in sort of the liberal political agenda. So I was a kind of a social outcast, <laughs> like no one, like I had friends, but like they weren't gonna, they weren't like deeply invested in our relationship because I was just different. Um, and the professors had kind of some like really different philosophical views than I did. And it just felt it felt difficult to, to fit in. So between just like philosophical differences and not doing well in some of the coursework and um, probably some sort of just, what do you call it? Like a quarter life crisis or something like that. <laughs> it just felt too hard. And I just thought life is not supposed to be this hard. So when I left, I was not sure whether I was going to you know, pursue a PhD at a different university um, pursue a different PhD, like maybe I was meant for theology or philosophy or religious studies or something, or whether I was going to, you know, do my own thing. Um, I felt that calling to do my own thing. I mean, I know, right. So at the beginning, when we did that fast forward overview of Morgan's life, it was like, oh yes, I was good at writing coaching. So then I went and became a freelance writing coach. That's how we all tell our story. But yeah, in the moment I was like, I actually don't know exactly what I'm going to do. Um, my husband ended up, he graduated law school. He ended up getting a job in Manhattan. So we moved to New York and I was looking at PhD programs in New York. And I was like, I just don't know. This feels complicated. And people kept, you know, asking me to edit for them. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll like set up a website for editing <laughs> and keep doing the freelance editing thing. And we kept having kids. So that's, you know, a part of the journey. I had one kid right after the master's. I had another kid right after we moved to New York. Um, I've had two more since, <laughs> so we have four now. So like every time we've had, you know, a baby, you kind of had to like reevaluate life all over again. But I don't think any of those decisions feel simple in the moment. Um, and certainly the decision to leave after the master's was kind of, is definitely fraught with like identity crisis and mild depression. <laughs> it's interesting to hear, you know, the, the fast track, kind of like you were saying, the fast track story versus like when, you, when we're actually drilling down into it, it wasn't an easy decision. And it seems like, you know, you really did go through a lot of, of uh, self-searching and, and a lot of thinking and processing and mulling over. And, you know, it was not an easy thing to do. And, and I think the beauty of that 
is that for those who are watching, listening, regardless of, of what you're going through, like, you know, it's probably very tough. It's probably very tough. But once you do go through those, then you can, you can make it to the other side and it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And uh, I think, I think that's a beautiful takeaway from your story of like, there, there are two sides to it or or maybe, maybe uh, two lenses to see it through. Like, what it looked like afterwards and then what was going on during that actual time. So um, thank you for, thank you for sharing that. That's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And there's kind of one more perspective that I'm learning. Um, When you listen to particularly, I think podcast interviews with entrepreneurs and we are doing that retrospective thing and or the fast forward version and we're kind of summing up the milestones along the journey. I think we have a tendency to make things sound simple, like, oh, it's so easy to make money online. You put out an offer, you know, you get a landing page, get click funnels, <laughs> like whatever it is. It's so easy to make money online. But when, when you, I think you only get that perspective when you've been through it and then you're looking back. I think wherever you are in the journey, what you're looking forward to accomplish always feels complicated. Right. And I think that's true of any milestone along the way. So I could look back at my previous self the first time I was putting up a website and be like, oh gosh, Morgan, it'd be so easy. Just put up your WordPress website, get a Facebook account, like start posting. That's simple. But I'm sure in 10 years from now, I will also look back at where I am now, trying, you know, really stepping into this CEO role. And I'll look at myself and be like, Morgan, come on, get it together. You put together a system, you hand it off to someone else, you check in, that's how you delegate. Like, it's not that complicated. (laughs) But um, to give ourselves that compassion that when we're looking forward, it's always going to feel complicated and that simplicity is going to come on the other side. So just because someone else is describing something simply doesn't mean that it was simple for them and it doesn't mean it should be simple for you right now either. Absolutely. And, and I think another important thing there, and this is something that, you know, I'm 24, I'm not that wise. Like I, I, I hear things that wise people say, and I feel like that, uh, you know, I like to borrow their wisdom from time to time. But, um, you know, one, one of my really good friends always used to say, and we were talking about it in, in the context of relationships, you know, you look back on something and it's real it's really easy to only remember the good parts of it, or if it was a really bad thing, the bad parts of it. And it's hard to put yourself back in that exact frame of mind where you're seeing the reality of the situation instead of like the highlights that you remember. Cause I mean, we, we have amazing brains and we can remember a lot, but there are a lot of things that we're going to forget too. So I think that's also important to remember. Like when people are telling their story of like, oh, I did this and I did that and I did that. They may cover like three years in like 10 seconds. And there's a huge difference between those words and like the reality of the situation. Um, so yeah, that, uh, again, I'm so glad that we're, that we're going into this because I think this is huge and like nobody's talking about it. Yeah, 100%, totally. So when you were on your own, and you made that decision. What were some of the actionable steps that you took in order to grow your business, grow your client base, and to build your brand? Back at the very beginning, like when I put up my first website and I was mm-hmm. a freelance editor. <laughs> um, 
so I did, so I did the website thing and I posted blogs every week and I posted them on Facebook and Twitter because those were the main platforms of the day in, I think this was 2013. Um, but I was not savvy to like, I, maybe I did a couple YouTube videos, but I felt very uncomfortable with it. Um, I was not savvy to like the, the YouTube kind of search engine stuff. Um, probably the biggest needle mover was when I would finish up a one project with a client, I would immediately ask, do you know anyone else who's working on a paper right now that could use some editing? So intentionally asking for those referrals was really hard, uh, but I think was the thing that probably brought in the most projects at that, that point in time. And I really underestimated the power of a referral network. I thought that if you just put things out on the internet that like people automatically see it, <laughs> which maybe happens occasionally, um, but really everything, like your most powerful connections will happen through your network and your network will grow. So you just have to use your network for what it is right now and know that like it's going to grow, it's going to expand, you're going to get into new areas. And still, I would probably say even now, although it's a totally different network than it was, probably my most powerful connect, my most, like some of my biggest needle movers in my business are still when we finish up a project and we say, hey, do you know anyone else who would be interested in the same type of project? That's huge. That's huge because we're in the we're in the age of digital marketing and social media and click funnels and upsells and that stuff. And it seems like you're very savvy with that now. Um, and you're still saying referrals are some of the biggest needle movers. So that's that's really interesting. Um, once you started to really get traction, and maybe you pivoted a couple times, but you you started building a team. You started really like okay. I'm doing it. I'm making stuff happen. Um, at what point did you feel successful? At what point did you feel like, all right, I'm doing it. Like this is so, this is real. Like I'm a business owner. I'm an entrepreneur. That's a hard question <laughs> because the target's always moving, right? So back in the day, I would have said, gosh, if I had $2,000 in revenue in a month, that would be phenomenal you know and we're now like we're still very much a growing business but like last month we had a forty thousand dollar revenue month and still i'm like oh there's so much i still want to do so like that like the the target will always move um i will say when i stopped constantly um telling myself that i was not successful right so the the internal dialogue um when did i feel like i was successful i used to tell myself you're just not a success yet. Like you just don't get it yet. Like you're not making progress like other people are making progress. It was when I started focusing on my mindset. And I know <laughs> that that is, can feel so cheesy in the moment, but like I joined a coaching program and it was, it was all for women who had big visions and did like weren't making the progress they wanted to make. And as it turned out, the course was all about, their coaching program was all about mindset. And I remember the first time that I said out loud to this group of women, I was like, I think I'm building a publishing company. And I was like, oh my God, I just said that out loud. <laughs> you know? Because I was a freelance editor. Like, what the hell did I know about building a publishing company? But saying the words out loud made me realize like, oh, I think I can do this. 
And then you start to see the manifestations in reality. Then you start to like, you know, you like, okay, if I can say it out loud, like maybe I can write it on a web page. Okay. Yeah. So I wrote a sales, you know, a little sales page. All right. So this is how we're going to help you publish your book. And then I remember, um, some of the, well, who's the first, I'm trying to think, um, really the first book project we actually did was my book because our clients were asking us like, can you help us publish a book? And I was like, well, I think I should like experiment with this on myself before I do it for you guys. So I wrote a book really fast. It's over my shoulder right there. Start writing your book today. Um, <laughs> and it's still on Amazon and it's got like 200 reviews, so it's doing good. But, um, when I put that out and I did a webinar to launch the book and people bought my book, I was like, Oh, okay. We, I just published this book and people are buying it. Like that was when it really hit me that like, wow, I think I'm doing this. Like this isn't just me saying to a group of women, I think I want to publish books. I think I want to run a publishing company. It was like, we had clients who were asking us, how can we do this? And then we did it and then people bought it. So that was a, that whole experience took over a year. So we're doing the, you know, fast forward version again, but, um, like that, I just remember those endpoints are just very sticky for me saying the words out loud and then seeing a book in real life that people bought were, were monumental for me. So from that point, of, oh, wow, I'm, I'm building a publishing company and then building a publishing company, right? Now we're here. Where is here exactly? Like, what, you know, where are you in, in your journey, in your business, in your life? Yeah, so um, we live just outside of Denver, Colorado. <laughs> we have four kids. And the company is Paper Raven Books. And we are a team of, we probably have 15 to 17 people on the team. Um, everyone's a contractor. There's no salaried positions. And we can um, help people write the book. So we have writing coaches and editors who can actually help you, you know, walk through the writing process. We have a course as well on, on the writing process. Um, once there's a finished manuscript, like a Word document, we can actually take it through the editing phases and the cover design and the interior design and all of the super geeky keywords and categories and metadata stuff that you need to, to get visible on Amazon. We can help you launch the book. Um, so that it becomes Amazon number ones and it's the most relevant categories. We help with emails and social media and podcast tours and, and all that kind of PR stuff. And now we're also building out the marketing side. So what would it look like to help an author, you know, build marketing funnels to sell their books? So we, you know, before we hit record, we were, you know, joking about free plus shipping funnels, right? So that's something I'm really interested in. How do we do like, you know, quizzes and run cold traffic and free plus shipping funnels and one click upsells and all of that is, is fascinating to me and what I want to learn more about. So that's really where our company is growing now but yeah kind of our tagline is we help you write publish and market your book and we're independent we're technically self-publishing services which means that as the author you retain the creative vision you retain the legal rights to your book isbn copyrights all yours and um, the profits so everything is in your name your accounts all the money goes directly to you as the author and we feel like that's really um unique in the publishing industry and kind of the, the new way forward so 
alongside your professional career and, and your professional journey, um, and we talked about your, your kids a little bit, um, but what else has been going on in your personal life? What are some of those milestones up till now? Uh, my husband and I move a lot. <laughs> so, you know, Texas to Colorado to Nashville, Tennessee, to Hoboken, New Jersey, to Brooklyn, New York, down to Houston for a few years. We took a break from life. We went, you know, through uh, Europe with three kids for six months, because why not? <laughs> Came back to Houston and then moved up to Denver. So one of our big family milestones was that we landed in a city that we actually love and we want to stay here because <laughs> we are, my husband loves his job. I'm remote. Like I, I'm a digital nomad, so I can work wherever. And we're close to the mountains. So we have a city that we love, a job that my husband loves, and we're close to the mountains so we can do skiing and hiking and camping and all of that fun stuff. So we do a lot of that on the weekends. One of the things that I'm really interested in is connection. And it seems like regardless of what business any entrepreneur is in, the real underlying business is like the people business and, you know, connections. Um, so I'm really interested in learning about your philosophy to developing deep, meaningful, and genuine connections with another person. Yeah. Um, that is super insightful. And I, it's taken me a long time to get to that realization. So <laughs> kudos, you may be 24, but you're learning a lot about <laughs> people. I think especially running this podcast is probably, um, you probably get to hear so much wisdom. Um, it's taken me a long time to learn that I actually need to invest in relationships. So um, I do still maintain contact with like my childhood friends, you know, some of who I've known since I was like four or five. So that's great. Um, but maintaining, you know, business relationships intentionally can be difficult. Uh, some of my best business relationships have been when we joined a coaching program together. So not necessarily free, but you know, you, you buy into a coaching program because you all want to learn this thing. You're all really invested in your own success. And I think it attracts like-minded people. Um, and I've stayed in, in touch with some of those people through, you know, Facebook Messenger and Voxer and, um, you know, when someone's hosting a live event or they're, they're putting together their own sort of peer mastermind, you know, I'll try to, try to make sure that I'm involved in that. Uh, but I'm, I still feel like I'm learning a lot. Uh, one of the things that's been most influential for me over the last um, really year and a half is that I've started going to live events. And as a digital entrepreneur, like online entrepreneur, we think, oh, I can do everything from my laptop. I don't need to be there in person. But I have made really powerful connections in person. So I'm part of a coaching program for the Ask Method, Ryan Levesque, and they have live events um, like three to four times a year. And I have committed to like going and showing up and I see the same people at each event and like we hang out, we have dinner, you know, sometimes like, you know, I'll room with, there's someone in my accountability group and we'll room together, we'll show the hotel room and, and there's just a lot more sort of bonding time in person. Um, also, one of my super close friends from a different coaching program, she likes to host live events. So she had a live event in England where she lives. She's hosting another one in Bali. <laughs> and there is, these are like massive stretches to like go to these live events, particularly in arranging, you know, care and logistics for four children at home. 
but they have been very powerful in, for me in um, either establishing or maintaining those close relationships. And it makes it easier. Like if you know you're gonna see people occasionally, it makes it easier to shoot them a Facebook message occasionally or a Voxer or an email or that sort of thing. But the live events have been super powerful for me in the last year and a half. What's your greatest theory? My greatest theory? <laughs> oh, Lord. Um, I don't know. I've never thought about my greatest theory. Um, this is interesting, especially as a sociologist. We spend a lot of time in theory, but... I guess my theory would be that um, I don't know, maybe we're never done growing and learning. You know, some people say, well, I just want to like learn everything I need to learn to like do this thing. And I'm like, I don't know. I think, you know, even if we talk about the afterlife, I think we're always going to learn. <laughs> like, I hope that whatever version of heaven there is, it, it involves some sort of course or <laughs> a series of, of books and classes that we get to go through. Um, so I guess that's kind of my theory is that like we are always a progression here on this earth and, and also whatever comes next. I think that's an awesome theory. I really do. And because learning for me is like one of, it's one of my favorite things to do and exploring different vehicles with which to learn or learn through whatever. Um, I mean, that led to this podcast. Like this podcast was a learning tool because like three years ago or maybe two and a half years ago, um, I started realizing like, wow, I don't know anything. And there are so many people who do. Why not just ask them, ask them about it. And uh, yeah, so it's very interesting that, that you say that. Uh, so, you know, Morgan, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show today and uh, sharing this time with me. It's truly been a, a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. Thank you, Ben. This has been really fun. <laughs> totally <laughs> a wild ride. I had no idea what to expect, but it's been really awesome. So yes, let me know when, when this goes live and I will happily share it out with all the people that I want to know my most vulnerable stories. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So I have two more quick questions, okay. then, we'll, then we'll wrap it on up. The first is, is there anything about yourself that you think is an important part of who you are that I did not ask you about today? In other words, what did I miss? Hmm. Um, it's interesting that um, I never considered myself a writer. Not really. I mean, I did writing, but I didn't really consider myself a writer until I actually published this book that's right there behind me. Um, and I thought that I was just doing the writing to get the book out for the, to grow the business. But now that I think about the future of our company, I realize like I'm going to be writing a lot more books. <laughs> and so I need to not just be an editor, not just a writing coach, but I really need to kind of embrace the writer in me and, um, and devote more time to the writing. So I don't tend to talk about myself as a writer, uh, but it's something I'm learning to embrace because I think that's part of my, uh, what I'm, what I'm going to morph into my next evolution. <laughs> Last question for you. I'm 24. 
have a have a couple businesses. Um, obviously, the show is you know one of my greatest passions. What question should I be asking you, like specifically me, mm. asking specifically you, with your knowledge, your experience, your wisdom, your genius, that I just wouldn't think to ask? How do you know whether you are meant to be an entrepreneur or whether you're meant to work for someone else in a creative and innovative capacity? Can, can you answer that question for me, please? Oh, now I have to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> trick. <laughs> what a great trick. Um, I think sometimes when we are creative and we love learning, we think that that's going, that's, that's the indication that we should be an entrepreneur. What I've been learning is that being an entrepreneur is a lot more about um, learning to put out an offer and ask for the sale and, you know, market the, market the offer and, and build out the systems for the, all the systems for the marketing, for the product and service delivery, for the customer care, for the team development, for that, like, there's so much more to being an entrepreneur that's not necessarily about loving the learning. Like, that's part of it, but that's, it's, it's a lot more about the business side than I really, than I ever realized. Whereas, if you just love to be head down, just creating, you know, whether that's writing or, or just like, you know, tinkering or innovating or inventing something, you could actually have someone else pay you a lot of money just to do that. And then you don't have to worry about <laughs> anybody else except doing the job that you're paid to do. So that's um, something that I have been slowly realizing, kind of as we talked about earlier, when I rose from the craft, I was very much in the, the craftsman technician. If you haven't read E-Myth Revisited, then read that immediately. <laughs> I'm sure you have. Um, but that craftsman technician um, and then raising up, like I didn't realize what a difference it would be, a lived experience difference between the craftsman and technician to the entrepreneur who's really creating systems is kind of what it comes down to and developing yourself so that your system can get bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more complicated and being okay with that and being able to see the vision and stay grounded in, in what you're building. So that's kind of been kind of my journey. Morgan, again, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show and, and sharing everything that you have uh, to everybody who's listening, watching. I want to thank y'all for sticking with us all the way to the end and supporting the show and generally being awesome. You know, you guys are totally the best and y'all rock and I love y'all very much. So y'all the reason I do this and thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, but yeah, Morgan, you want to wrap us up? Well, thank you so much for being on here. And I hope that this inspires someone. I hope that if you've been feeling like you're stuck in a place of you're trying to make a decision that you have a little bit of a nudge just to assume that whichever decision you, you know, you decide to go with, you can be successful either way. Just pick whichever one you want to go with. And that, that's the thought that I would leave you all with. Awesome. All right, everybody. I will hope to talk to you, speak to you, uh, yeah, on the next episode, let's change the world.